2: The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. Day, January 17th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Peskett. It's not been a great time if you're a fan of smooth, functional air travel. No, not just the horrible crash in the Paul. Did you hear about the near miss at JFK? If you didn't hear it then, hear it now.
1: 35018 goes 2-4, four. runway 4 left, 15 off. Right, Clip, runway 4 left, Gulfstar, uh, 19 4 <laughs> American 106 Heavy, American 106 Heavy, hold
2: position. Shit and fuck. Well, the fuck was almost totally bleeped out, but you're at the beginning of the shit. That was uh, American Airlines Flight 106, almost colliding with Delta Airlines Flight 1943. That was because the planes were allowed to fly at all. Unlike the previous week, when the notice-to-air missions, the NOTAM system crashed because of a buggy code or a corrupt file, which grounded thousands of flights. Not the NOTAM system! Everyone knows you gotta update your NOTAM files, said thousands of inconvenience travelers who had no idea about the notice-to-air missions or NOTAM system existing the day before. It's all enough to fill Washington with dread. And by that, I mean Phil Washington, Philip Washington, President Biden's nominee to head the FAA. He might be in for a, sorry, bumpy flight because Republicans and most of the Democrats have voiced concern or at least lack of support that the chief executive at Denver International Airport has any aeronautic experience except for being chief executive of the Denver International Airport, which is impressive. It's a busy airport, but if you compare Phil Washington's resume to those of his predecessors, it's less Aeronautic than usual. He was in the Army and rose to the rank of Command Sergeant Major. Impressive. And then he joined Denver's Regional Transportation District, which operates buses and rails. Did that until 2009. Moved to LA. Did the bus and rail system there for six years. And then ran the Denver airport, which is great, but he's not a pilot. He's never fixed a plane. He's never run an airline. And except for the fact that Chuck Schumer said the guy's going to get a vote, it doesn't seem that most people in Washington want him to be the FAA commissioner. So it seems that the Biden administration badly needed a win if they wanted their dreams to take flight. And now they've got one. Politico headline, airplane laboratories deliver new hope for the CDC's variant hunt. The Biden administration plans to widen testing of bathroom waste when international flights arrive. Yes, The toilets and airplanes, under the purview of the federal government, offer tantalizing clues about COVID. The Traveler Genomic Surveillance System. Oh my God, wait until InfoWars gets a hold
1: of that one. If I didn't have a liberal from New York in the bathroom, I couldn't wipe my ass. Excuse me. I apologize. We have a family audience. That was wrong and I won't do it again.
2: Anyway, the Traveler Genomic Surveillance System is being ramped up to test what air passengers have pooped out of manipulative lying crap based on a pilot program at JFK which is kind of confusing it wasn't a program to test the pilots but to take advantage of the fact that as the book says everybody poops Politico quoted Matthew McKnight who's a general manager at Ginkgo Bioworks which is working with the CDC to test the poop Ginkgo it's where the stink goes And McKnight says, just like we have a radar to look for airplanes to make sure we know what's coming into our country, or we have swabs and samples to make sure everybody walking through security doesn't have explosives on their hands, this is the same for pathogens or viruses or bacteria. No, it's not the same. One of those things to keep planes from crashing into each other. Another is to keep them from exploding into fireballs, costing millions of dollars and hundreds of lives. The thing you're talking about is sifting through the caca to get a read on where infections may be headed. McKnight is sort of saying, well, we look at some things associated with an airport. Let's look at some other things. I guess it's better when he invokes radar and bomb-sniffing dogs. By the way, I'm all for this monitoring. I don't really think there are legitimate privacy concerns, though one expert is quoted as saying some passengers see the analysis of their waste as a privacy issue. I keep the fact that I love corn from my family, I hid it this whole time, and now, now I'm unmasked. Does anyone this side of Howard Hughes think that analysis of their waste is a security issue? Huh, Howard Hughes, he was the aviator, wasn't he? As well as a guy who peed in jars that he held on to. That same quoted expert says, quote, airlines that facilitate could be taking a reputational risk because it could bring focus to the fact that there are people on their flights infected with COVID. Right. No one figured that anyone with COVID ever took a flight or if Delta, let's say, participates in the program. Wait, you're gonna take a Delta flight? That's the airline that has ever had someone aboard with COVID. I think we need to take Spirit or Southwest Airline. They don't participate in the poop sifting. Therefore, I can only conclude that no one with COVID has ever flown them. Also, I'm gonna wait for five days in an airport, thanks Southwest. I do support the poop sifting program. I hope they transmit enough data to the CDC to fill Washington, as it were. And I'm glad the administration is championing it, and I only hope that they don't come across any surprises like, say, classified documents discovered floating in the wastewater. On the show today, the writer whose greatest work of fiction was her own death, but that's only because the rest of her works of fiction were so bad. But first, James Vincent is a London-based senior reporter for The Verge and the author of the newly released Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants. He joins me for a really fascinating discussion about the rise of the foot to the demise of the qubit. James Vincent, up next. In Finnish, a peninkulma is the distance from which a dog's bark can be heard. A collop is the amount needed to graze a single cow, according to some set of Irishmen. And going back to Finland once more, parankusma is the distance a reindeer can travel without having to stop to pee. Come with me on a long and winding, I would say three to four, Paran journey (laughs) as we discuss Beyond Measure, the hidden history of measurements from qubits to quantum constants written by James Vincent. You never thought you needed to know so much about measuring until you read James's book. Thanks for joining me on the gist.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm glad you got those out the way quickly. Those are my favorite measurements in the book.
2: Those are some good ones. The Nileometer—it's like, what is that? But then (laughs) it's something that measures the Nile. Yeah. (laughs) So, since the reindeer, let's go to the reindeer. Since it's not exact, it's seven to seven and a half. Uh, kilometers from what Mm. I understand, but this will depend on many things. The size of the reindeer, how much snow the reindeer has eaten, (laughs) just the the general vegetation in the area. How useful was it or was it just the best they could do or even better yet, what does it illustrate for us about measurements in general?
0: I can't say how useful it was. I suspect it was an ad hoc measure, uh, as a lot of units of measurement are. We measure things based on uh you know we look to reality we look to our life we look to our bodies we look to nature the world around us in order to find ways to sort of compare or to quantify it so the distance a reindeer goes before you uh, before it needs to urinate just an ad hoc measurement what it shows is that um, measurement is something that often relates to our own lives. It's something that in the case of the Finnish people who were using this measure, they were using it because they were hanging about with reindeer all day. They had them in herds. They were using them for food. They were sometimes using them as beasts of burden. So you would look to them for a source of stability with which you could measure out your world. And it's a pretty handy measurement. You don't have a clock on you. You don't have a map on you. You've got a reindeer nearby, so why not use that? (laughs)
2: Yeah, you could, uh, this reindeer is so reliable, you could measure time by him. And then your reindeer gets a urinary infection and all of a sudden you're late.
0: (laughs) It's the same thing that might have started as a joke indeed, and then just became a little part of culture. Um, But it shows, yeah, how measurement is sort of um, something necessary for us and that comes, yeah, out of the habits of everyday life.
2: But they they can't have an expression like a constipated reindeer is right twice a day. That does not apply,
0: (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) I don't think they were nearly as inventive about it as you were being, no.
2: So as you first uh, survey, I I don't want to say prehistory, but the early days of measurement, it's fascinating. And as what I did as a reader is I kept making analogies to measurements that we use. And instead of dismissing the collop, it's really quite useful. There are many measurements that do what the collop does, which just doesn't tell you the exact acreage of land, but tells you the useful thing you need to know about the land. It's sort of like, um, you know, how far you could get on a tank of gas.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, there are a lot of units like the collop in medieval Europe, which is obviously an agricultural society. So everything is orientated, or a lot of work and life is orientated around what you can get out of the land. So as you say, Collop is the amount of land needed to graze a single cow. So that means if you're selling land, if you're buying land, you don't really care how big it is per se. What you care is the value you can get out of this, which is, can it support the livestock that you have? Right. This is something that is uh, common, particularly in agricultural units, but it shows um, how even non-standardized measurements can have this utility because they capture information that is not necessarily reflected by standardized units of measurement. Um, the, sort of one of the big stories in the book and you know if people ask me to um boil it down to a single sentence or a single thesis it's that the history of measurement is a history of increasing abstraction and what i mean by that is that units of measurement start off as these things very close to our own experience you know the earliest units of measures are tend to be derived from the body you get the foot you get the span the fathom the cubit right. all these units even
2: the cubit is hand related right the
0: cubit is the distance from the elbow to the fingertip, uh, the word in English comes from the Latin cubitum, which just means elbow. But it's something that was a, a, a very popular unit in the Middle East, in North Africa with the Egyptians. And, you know, so it appears in the Bible, for example, quite a lot. You know, they talk about the right. dimensions of Noah's Ark in cubits. Um,
2: so when they but, say, so when we say now some elbow room, we're literally saying, give me a cubit here.
0: <laughs> I hadn't thought about that connection, but that's exactly right. Try that in an elevator next time. Can you get, just hey, give me, give a, me cubit, a cubit, man. give me a cubit, buddy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but um measurement starts like this and then we sort of work out that if we want it to be useful it needs to be consistent a unit needs to measure the same it needs to measure the same value the same quantity the same amount every time we use it and this is very useful because it allows measurement to function better as a tool of communication. Um, You know, this is another big thing in the book is that, um, you know, there used to be so many different systems of measurement. Every country used to have its own system, almost every region. You know, you would have units, some units that were well known across a large landmass, but some that were quite localized or they varied in their capacity. Um, And that obviously creates friction it's like going to a different country and learning a new language if you have to translate all your knowledge from one set of units to another that's gonna be a bit of a pain um so measurement over time over this sort of grand sweep of history as i look at it which is you know six thousand years or something really uh maybe five thousand um it becomes standardized and it becomes abstracted because that abstraction allows it to be applied at a distance you know um but obviously not not everyone is signed on to what is the dominant uh, system of measurement at the moment, the metric system. You know, obviously over in America, you guys are uh, still... Yeah, sorry it, about that one.
2: No, it's fine.
0: It's <laughs> fine. We've got them over here in the UK as well. We're just not as, we're not quite as tightly tied to them as you guys are.
2: So you do say, as you ju- just said, it's uh, it's a march towards abstraction, but It's also Mm. can be looked at a march towards standardization and reliability. In France, every different province would have a different definition of a pint, often differing by as much as a pint. So is it was it really getting more abstract to say, no, this is the pint and it's 16 ounces, although you'll tell me if that was what the French decided it was or was it less abstract?
0: Well, you're right. So abstraction and standardization are linked together. Um, But I would argue that um, abstraction comes from our definitions used in the metric system, that being what the French eventually went over to instead of this confusion of units. So in the run up to the French Revolution, As you say, there were all these different units within France that um, really created a lot of friction for the country in terms of uh, economics, in terms of the lives of the peasants. Um, And so they decided to replace it with uh, the metric system. Now, the metric system is certainly abstract because um, they decided that they wanted to derive the value of these units from, you know, cutting edge science at the time. So, for example, when they looked to create a new standard unit of length, they created the meter. Now the meter is defined as one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator, which I think is a pretty abstract way to define a unit of length, right? It's not something that necessarily connects to human experience directly. Um, but the argument was that- Yeah, especially um, at,
2: at the time, no human had ever been to the North Pole, so it literally
0: did not. <laughs> Yeah, it was based on a calculation of uh, continental Europe that was sort of, you know, um, you know, timed up, as it were, in order to get the final unit mm-hmm. and then divided. Um, but it was uh, seen as scientific and it was seen as universal as well. So the idea was that, uh, you know, the old French common unit of length was the pied du roi, literally the foot of the king. So this was a unit derived very um, obviously from the bodily authority of the monarch. So when the French Revolution came and they were getting rid of all these old systems, they were like, well, why are we gonna have a a unit that's based on the king's body when we're gonna lop off the king's head? Um, Yes. well yeah shorter than more than a foot for him uh and they said well let's turn it into something uh scientific and based on this common inheritance which is what they thought the earth would be they thought well if everyone can derive their units of measurement from the earth rather than from you know these sorts of units we've talked about that are derived from the land then it would be something that everyone can access obviously That didn't quite work out and there were lots of objections to the metric system, some of which are still, you know, discussed today. But that was the big impetus behind it, that this was a system of measurement, the metric system that was designed to solve political problems as well as practical problems.
2: Yeah, they would have been better off, I guess, if they had gone with the uh, the Kuduru, the neck of the king. (laughs) (laughs) The revolutionaries needed that measurement. Um, But what the, and we'll come back to the French Revolution and the metric system, but what they were doing was inherently political, but so was every measurement that you write about beforehand. Measurements just are political and are about power for good and ill, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. This was something that sort of really surprised me when I looked into the deep history of this. You know, I I kind of started writing the book thinking it would be relatively, you know, technical and quite nerdy. And then I started looking at the history of, of measurement and realized it was really deeply tied to political power and to sort of how society is organized in these very, uh, these very, uh, these big overarching systems. So, you know, talking thousands of years ago, when the first city states are being uh, developed, when we you know you'll first have the first glimmerings of, you know, what we call civilization... Um, measurement and, and uh, making sure there were units of measure consistent measurements to be used within a certain area was one of the big responsibilities of the local king or the local chief or the prince or whoever it was it was a task that was like maintaining the roads or meeting out uh, you know justice for criminals uh, you know punishments for criminals it was something that you did in order to keep your people happy and this meant that control over units of measurement becomes really Closely associated with political sovereignty and with power, uh, and you know, you, I think you know, you see sort of vestiges of that still today. You get something like the scepter, for example, as this sort of symbol of uh, of, of of monarchy, of 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 ruling. And one of the earliest examples of that uh, in one of the the Babylonian steles uh, depicting the Com- code of Hammurabi archaeologists interpret the scepter that the king has as a measuring rod you know it was Mm. something that you literally used to lay down the rule um so this means that measurement becomes yeah very political and control over it becomes a political question
2: so can you think of an example where there was uh an exertion of power via measurement where maybe there were two sides debating and either a clever person or party uh, got their way about the measurement and it redounded to their favor? Or the reason that they were arguing the the power struggle was over how to measure something and then we were st- stuck or that, that society was stuck with the winner?
0: Well, uh, the big example is, is the metric system because um, that was created, as I said, during the French Revolution. But obviously, when Napoleon took over France, and started invading the rest of Europe, he would um, frequently impose metric systems, metric measurements. On the countries he invaded, as part of the sort of uh, the, the Napoleonic Code, this system mm-hmm. of legislative and judiciary reforms that he thought would make a country, uh, you know, modern in a way. And some countries resisted this; they wanted to keep their own systems of measurement. And other countries sort of embraced it actually because they that because they knew their own system was a mess and they wanted to have this clean slate that was imposed by an outsider. It was very handy. Um, the, the funny thing is, is that Countries often change their systems of measurement during times of political upheaval. So after the Russian Revolution, they go metric. After India um, achieves independence from the British Empire, they go metric. After the Chinese Revolution, they go metric. And it's only in these moments where you're really remaking society that I think people can put up with having something as fundamental as systems of measurement changed.
2: Mm. And that is why the United States never has, because our <laughs> uh, revolution predated it.
0: It's one of the reasons. Although I will say that your founding fathers, Washington and Jefferson, and everyone were metric mad. They loved metric. They wanted uh, the U.S. to adopt the metric system, um, and thought it was a really a, a matter of huge importance. As it turned out. You had other more important things on the agenda, and that's that's fair enough obviously um the u s it's it's weird the u s has tried to go metric many times and has nearly gone metric pretty 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 close most recently during the 1970s um, yeah.
2: but the Jimmy Carter got a lot of blowback from that he Between did that in the sweaters, yeah.
0: <laughs> and Reagan got to scrap it and that mm-hmm. was part of his you know tearing down the government it is a code
2: i'm not going to say right wing but nationalistic to not oh, have to absolutely uh, to not have to submit to the heel of this inherently superior system
0: yeah, and to get to frame it as a foreign imposition. Right. And it's funny because, you know, I I looked back at the history of anti-metric sentiment and the same arguments have been marshaled ever since the metric system was invented, that it is French. <laughs> it's one of the main objections that a, a, a lot of countries have, that it is for foreign, that it is unnatural, that it's, you know, it's the hubris of a man to try and think he could decide what metric, u- what units of measurement to use instead of using, you know, these inherited from millennia, the wisdom of the ages, this, these older units instead.
2: Yes. And the divisibility by 12 is somehow cited as a huge advance of the imperial system, though I don't know why 12 is better than 10.
0: Well, I, you know, that is one case where I think um, base twelve and base sixteen, there is something to be said for that. But there was something to be said for it in the past. So the argument that people make for the superiority of base twelve and sixteen over base ten over decimal is that it's much easier to half, quarter, and third things just at a glance. You know, you can easily divide twelve and sixteen into into those uh, into those fractions. And that was genuinely more useful at a time when you would be buying more loose goods, basically. If you went down to the market and you're buying, you know, a couple of feet of fabric or you're weighing out your mutton or whatever it might be, being able to half, quarter and third those units in your head without calculation is very handy. But actually, as sort of, you know, globalization happens and as we get the sort of industrialization of agriculture People buy more and more prepackaged goods, or it's easier to measure things out, so they have these tools available to them. So base twelve and base sixteen were useful, I think, in the past, but they are unnecessary now. I would, I would argue.
2: Do you, do you, James Vincent, own any ornament or keepsake, a metrological object uh, mounted on your wall or elsewhere that reminds you of measurement?
0: Uh, I have a very lovely vintage measuring tape which was given to me by a dear friend of mine when the book was published uh which i love to bits uh um i it's it's a wonderful thing it's sort of made of um well actually i think it might be made of ivory on the back i don't Mm. i i that which is not so good obviously but it was from a time when that was obviously fine i'm not buying new ivory um right
2: Probably the (laughs) elephant or possibly walrus who gave their tusk for it would have been died of natural causes by now.
0: Yeah, Uh, but I had a habit with it for a while. Um, So I I saw this video ages ago on Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Mario, and he has uh, a bizarre habit um, where he keeps a measuring tape in his pocket and he estimates, he's very good at estimating the size of things. So if you show him an object, like a glass, as a hobby, he will go, oh, yeah, that's uh, 11 centimeters. And then he takes his tape out and it measures it. And you go, "Wow, it's 11 centimeters, Shigeru, how did you even know that? And I saw I saw this video of him doing it. And I thought, what a, what a bizarre hobby. I want to try and do that. So I had a thing for a while where I would keep this measuring tape with me. And I, I did get better at it. You know, it's a skill you could, you you show me a pen and I'll just be like, yeah, that's eight and a half centimeters. And then you check it and you're like, yeah, I was pretty close.
2: Did it help you practically at all? Did it? No, no. I
0: mean, it got me bullied at the pub a couple of times, but I don't think that was helpful. No, good for my humility, (laughs) perhaps.
2: (laughs) Tomorrow on The Gist, James and I will discuss the inherent challenges of measuring time how the United States has quietly embraced some aspects of the metric system and how the NFL will probably keep us from fully embracing it. And also, while I have you, and speaking of measurement, why don't you rate the gist on those sites that offer ratings where you listen to podcasts or go to our Reddit page and engage in the conversation there. Give it five stars or a thumbs up or whatever you want to do, it may help more people find us, which is the goal of empiricism, is it not? And now the spiel. Novelist Susan Meachin gets tarred for faking her own death, but then George Santos is criticized for faking his own life. I guess you can't win. The latest on Santos, or maybe Santos de Volder, or probably Santos de Volder sose is conveyed here by MSNBC's Willie Geist.
0: Well, the latest controversy surrounding Congressman George Santos. New reports saying Santos is connected to the cousin of a Russian oligarch who donated hefty sums to his
2: campaign. This revelation comes as investigators now looking into his campaign financing. In this case, he was sanctioned because his oil trading was unsanctioned. And we expect Santos not to contradict himself, this being the state of law and language. The cousin of the oligarch is a financier with the name Andrew Intraitor, who donated not only to Santos, but according to FEC filings, many, many Republicans, including Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, Martha McSally, Elise Stefanik, and one Democrat. Can you guess her? It's Tulsi Gabbard. And now, that, that right there, that's the red flag. And Trader also funded and possibly lost money in the Ponzi scheme, do we have to say alleged Ponzi scheme, that Santos DeVolder allegedly oversaw? It's all odd, but nothing that a three-time Time Magazine Man of the Year like George Santos can't help us understand. Susan Meachin, on the other hand, that one takes a little more understanding. Here's Houston's Fox News 26 covering it. This may be possibly the wildest publicity
1: stunt ever. Romance novelist Susan Meachin. at the center of it. Her friends and fellow authors thought she took her life, suicide, back in 2020. So
2: everyone was surprised when a person using Meechan's Facebook account made a
1: new post Monday. Allegedly, Meachin's family made the whole damn thing up. According to reports, Meachin continued to publish books under the pseudonym
2: TN Steele. The announcement has left many members of the book community
0: stunned. Authors Rashonda Tate and Donnie P are here to talk with us about this con- what the hell?
2: What the hell indeed, to quote the host of the Isaiah Factor, uncensored, Isaiah. And he is indeed uncensored. So please factor that in. But the story is really only unbelievable or just deeply weird or made especially weird if you emphasize that this was an author who felt abused by the nasty book community online. Meacham was an author in that someone who writes books is an author and she wrote 14 of them, but she wasn't an author in the sense that people read her books or that she made a living on her books or forget a living, even turned a profit off of the books or even that she wrote books that were readable. Here is an audio excerpt from My Crush. I'd left home
0: with more than I was going back with except for scars I had gained. A lot of those are from poor choices in men. You can't see them, but they're there, buried right under the skin, always
2: itching when I get too close to someone. I use them to gauge people. Gauge scars? Those are useful. Here's a bit from her Smoky Mountain love. Nana always said one day we'd both wake up and see each other as the other half of ourselves. Right about now, my mother is walking a hole in the rug downstairs. She's not happy that I'm going to Nana's this summer to make my choice for my future. My mother isn't a bad person or anything. She just sees me following in her footsteps, going to college, getting married, and then becoming a housewife.
1: The only thing is, I've seen that coin flipped in life.
2: And here's how another couple in one of Meechin's books first meet on the path to waking up and seeing each other as the other halves of themselves. Quote, you're joking, right? Your friend is in this bar with my best friend and he thinks she's an angel? What are the chances of us meeting as we look for our best friends who just happen to be together? Oh, sorry, my name is Misty. And yours is? Quote, damn, my charm is overflowing with you around it would seem, Misty. It is a pleasure to meet you. My name is Eric. If you want, I'll go first and you could follow me into the club. Don't lose sight of me or you'll forever be lost in this mass of people. And that is from an excerpt, a reading from Losing Him and Finding You. Now romance, it's not my genre of writing, but that's barely writing. We're told that Meechan had a website with 700 followers. That's barely a website. And she faked her own death, but she barely pulled that off. I'm not saying this to mock the woman who's clearly having a rough time finding meaning or any success with her hobby. And she does have bipolar disorder. But a lot of the power of this story, I mean, why we heard it, comes from the idea that book social media is mean or authorship is unforgiving. The New York Times, in an exclusive interview with her, frames the website as part of the literary world, sometimes known as Romance Landia. Come on, it's barely a romance-ignored outpostia. If this were an amateur woodworker who carved chairs or tables that would not stand up on their own, would him faking his own death matter to anyone, make national news, fit into some context that people who write newspapers find interesting? If Susan Meachin were an aspiring rapper, sus beats, whose rhymes were plain awful and never earned her any money or prospects of money, would sus beats going dark for a time and then coming back seem captivating at all? Susan Meachin got bullied on Facebook, on a page she created, and wrote sentences her community rightly adjudged to having not a lot of value, and then picked a dramatic exit strategy for a small amount of time. No one was really hurt, they might have felt tricked, she might have ripped off some donors, but she says there was very little money actually donated, she maybe made some people feel bad. I guess for the first time, she got an audience to feel much of anything at all. She told the New York Times that her faux demise was regrettable, and she has the scars to prove it. Scars that are on the inside, which may not technically be scars, but are still a warning sign, a gauge, and a promise to find the other best half of the self she hopes to be. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. And The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, g peru And thanks for listening. What the hell?